Alabama prisoners go on strike, Kim Kardashian starts selling cement, and Balenciaga's got $2,000 potato chips. All that and more on this week's episode of Sunday Best. Today is Sunday, October 16th, 2022. I'm your host, Justin Meisner, and this is Sunday Best. I consumed all the news all week long, so you didn't have to. And today, we're going to look back and break down some of the week's best in current events, politics, and popular culture. But first, as always, it's time for our top story. This week, 10,000 inmates in Alabama's prison system remain on a labor strike that entered its third week, citing inhumane conditions, unpaid labor, and a flawed system in the state's corrections department. Alabama is one of five U.S. states where unpaid labor by inmates is still legal, and you can probably guess the other four. In response, the state reduced inmates' meals to a holiday schedule of two a day instead of three. Wow, holidays sound like a blast in prison. Blaming the unpaid labor strike for the disturbance in food availability. Inmates, however, are calling their bullshit, saying this is a clear retaliation for the strikes. And over the weekend, visitations were canceled at the five correction facilities remaining on strike due to, quote, the impact on staff resources, according to the Alabama Department of Corrections. An inmate who spoke to The Guardian on the condition of anonymity was quoted as saying that this is a humanitarian crisis. They're not providing us with any adequate medical treatment or mental health treatment, and we're not getting proper diets or any kind of rehabilitation. Prisoners at all 13 prisons in the Alabama Department of Corrections system started striking from their prison service jobs on September 26th, demanding improvement to conditions and reforms to harsh sentencing laws and surging parole denials that have long plagued the prison system in Alabama. Prisoners have refused to work prison service jobs such as food service, laundry, maintenance, and janitorial jobs that they do not receive pay to do. Prisoners have also begun to leak photos and videos of their living conditions and the cold, inadequate meals that they have been provided during the strikes. The videos and photos are actually rather unbelievable, and you can see for yourself examples of some right now on our Instagram, at SundayBestPod. One prisoner publicly claimed that they were transported from a work release center to a higher security prison and forced to work against the strike. An inmate currently incarcerated at Limestone Correctional Facility in Harvest, Alabama, explained to the Daily Mail that prison conditions have only worsened in recent years, with parole denials surging over the past three, pushing the prisoners to organize to demand improved conditions, as well as reforms to parole board hearings and harsh sentencing laws that are contributing to the significant overcrowding. We are being warehoused and worked in order to generate more for the state of Alabama, said the inmate. As of July of this year, the Alabama Department of Corrections currently holds more than 20,000 prisoners in facilities that are designed to hold at maximum a little over 12. In Alabama, 26% of prisoners are serving life sentences or sentences of at least 50 years or longer. While the state's prisons have been overcrowded, the system is also struggling with severe understaffing of correctional officers with 541 vacancies as of this past August. Parole denials also nearly doubled to 84% in 2021, compared with just 46 back in 2017. And in the fiscal year 2022, parole board denials hit an historic high of 89%. In 2019, the federal government began the process of forcing Alabama to fix its prison system when the United States Department of Justice alleged the Alabama prison system of violating the United States Constitution due to its poor conditions. 
It even filed a lawsuit against the state in 2020, and in 2021, they issued a complaint alleging Alabama had not improved its conditions. The state is fighting these allegations in court against the federal government, disputing constitutional violation. The complaints and allegations include overcrowding, understaffing, and a failure to protect prisoners from violence, sexual abuse, and excessive force from staff. The trial isn't even scheduled to begin until November of 2024, but prisoners have noted conditions have only gotten worse while the state builds three new prisons, diverting $400 million in COVID relief funds from the federal government toward their construction. Alabama has a history of recent botched executions and the highest death penalty sentences per capita in the U.S. In 2021, Alabama prisons reported a record number of deaths of prisoners due to violence and drug overdoses. Still to come on this week's episode, the West End has got a brand new diva. Diddy comes from Ace. Harry and Meghan need to get their story straight. And on an all-new deep dive, the Warner Brothers Discovery Merger Massacre. But first, it's time for last week's headlines. Over the weekend last week, the Los Angeles Times published the audio from an hour-long recording that was taken last year of a redistricting meeting with several Los Angeles City Council members and Council President Nuri Martinez, strategizing how to draw districts that would give Latinx people more power. And on the surface, it seems an understandable goal, because although Latinx people make up nearly half of Los Angeles, they hold fewer than a third of council seats. But the audio recording of the meeting took a darker turn and quickly dissolved into racist and homophobic nonsense that has enraged many citizens of Los Angeles. Nuri Martinez specifically can be heard making fun of a fellow council member who is Caucasian and has a black two-year-old child. During the recording, she uses a Spanish term that translates to little monkey when describing the child and said he needed a beatdown because the councilman was raising him like a white child. She also insinuated the councilman was using his black child as a prop during a public appearance. Once the audio recording was made public, the blowback was swift, with protests across the city all week long. But the city council moved slowly in its response to the backlash. Los Angeles, the nation's second largest city, is currently in the midst of a mayoral election in which rising crime, growing homelessness, and the economy have dominated. Experts are saying the racism heard in the recording underscores prevailing anti-black and anti-indigenous attitudes among many Latino communities. On Monday, Nuri Martinez initially claimed she would be taking a leave of absence from city council, but following mounting calls to resign, including from President Biden himself, Martinez finally announced her resignation on Wednesday with a half-assed apology making herself sound like a victim. California Governor Gavin Newsom said in a statement that Martinez's resignation was, quote, the right move. However, citizens remain enraged, as the remaining council members present during the recording have apologized, but thus far not joined Martinez in resigning. The California Attorney General announced this week that his office will launch an investigation into Los Angeles redistricting as a result of the leaked audio. The crisis is unlikely to affect the upcoming mayoral race, but if all the council members refuse to resign and the protests continue, tensions could increase. And a new mayor will have to tackle those issues and heal a new fallout. (laughs) 
This week, Alex Jones, the right-wing conspiracy theorist charlatan who has made millions upon millions with his internet show InfoWars, was ordered to pay roughly $965 million in defamation damages, plus attorney's fees and costs this week. The defamation suit was brought against the conservative disinformation peddler by families of the victims and one FBI agent who responded to the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting massacre that took place on December 14, 2012. Jones was one of the most far-reaching and vocal sources spreading a conspiracy theory that the shooting was a hoax by the political left to negatively alter the public's perception of guns and that the families that were publicly claiming to have lost children in the massacre were merely paid actors. Jones has made claims like this about other school shootings as well. The result has been a horrific decade of trauma and abuse for these families beyond the initial horror of the actual massacre itself as followers of Jones's show harassed and threatened these families in unimaginably horrific ways over the years. The unprecedented ruling took most by surprise, including legal experts. It is also clear that Jones will not be able to pay out the entirety of this massive ruling worth nearly a billion dollars, despite being a multimillionaire. Jones filed for bankruptcy protection in recent months and has declared on numerous occasions to have no money, despite his show Infowars, his main source of income, still thriving for now. In fact, it was live on the air of his show and not in the courtroom that Jones found himself as the ruling was heard in court in front of the families, with a single lawyer representing Jones sitting alone at his table. As Jones learned of the rulings in real time on his show, he stated that this must be what being in hell is like, Mm -hmm. and declared he would not stop. The victims have long held the position that the point of this defamation suit was not about the money, but about putting an end to Jones and his program. And with this staggering amount, an amount that Jones is unlikely to be able to pay despite allegedly recently moving and or possibly hiding approximately $65 million amidst his bankruptcy protection attempt, regardless of how many millions he may have stashed away, this will absolutely bankrupt him and his companies and put an end to his program and business. Well... One can only imagine and hope. And in sad news, musician M.I.A. lost all remaining credibility with me when she tweeted, If Alex Jones pays for lying, shouldn't every celebrity pushing vaccines pay too? Blech. Like, what the actual fuck, M.I.A.? You haven't been relevant for a very long time, and as far as I'm concerned, will now never be again. You and Mr. Jones can both go fuck all the way off, all the way off. Goodbye. Academy Award-winning actor Cuba Gooding Jr. received no jail time this week after pleading guilty in a forcible kissing case. Earlier this year, Gooding pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor charge for forcibly kissing an employee of a New York City nightclub back in 2018. He was subsequently arrested in 2019. By meeting the terms of the plea arrangement, which included staying out of trouble and going through six months of alcohol and behavior modification counseling, he was able to withdraw his initial plea and plead guilty instead to a non-criminal harassment violation. Gooding will face no additional penalties and will not have a criminal record. Had he not abided by the terms of the conditional deal, he could have been sent to jail for up to a year.
The sexual misconduct trial against actor Kevin Spacey by fellow actor Anthony Rapp is currently underway, with Rapp testifying on the stand this week about the encounter that he alleges to have taken place in Spacey's New York City apartment back in 1986, when Rapp was just 14 years old and appearing on Broadway. According to Variety, on Wednesday during Rapp's testimony, a furor erupted in the courtroom when Rapp testified, quote, I came forward because I knew I wasn't the only person that Kevin Spacey made advances to, a comment which immediately drew objection from Spacey's lawyers. Judge Lewis A. Kaplan sustained the objection and moved to strike Rapp's comments from the record, but the drama continued as attorneys were seen huddling at the side of the courtroom. Rapp, who alleges that Spacey lifted him onto his bed and got on top of him in a sexually suggestive manner, is suing the actor for $40 million in damages. Rapp said further, the incident with Spacey remains, quote, the most traumatic single event of my life, one that continues to haunt him to this day. American musician Genuine had a scare earlier this week as he rehearsed for a stunt for celebrity magician Chris Angel's magic show. In a video obtained by the Daily Mail, Genuine could be seen submerged in water while inside a glass box. At one point in the video, he makes a gesture that he is in distress and, once helped out of the box, is asked if he is okay and can be seen nodding yes before being laid out on the stage as if he were unconscious. A source reportedly revealed to the outlet that paramedics were called to the scene and it was understood that Genuine made a full recovery. A source told the Daily Mail, quote, In the show, he was trying to overcome his fear of being underwater, as he couldn't hold his breath for longer than 15 seconds. Although he failed in rehearsals, he still went ahead with the stunt on the show and had everyone in tears. And while I am glad that Genuine is okay, the most horrific part of this story seems to be the fact that this was all for a show in Las Vegas called Chris Angel's Magic with the Stars. Now that sounds fucking terrifying. The competitive Irish dancing world is in the grips of a major cheating scandal, according to Vice World News. This week, nearly 20 of the best-known teachers and schools in Irish dancing were accused of fixing competitions or offering to fix them for their own students. Irish dancing is immensely popular worldwide, with over 5,000 people competing annually at an international event referred to as the Olympics of Irish dancing. As I'm sure you have noticed, pronouncing things correctly isn't really my thing, so I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce the name of the event. Just Google the Olympics of Irish dancing and you should probably be fine. A 5-year-old and 14-year-old girl were shot and wounded over the weekend after their fathers opened fire at each other's cars in an incident of road rage in Florida. But this wasn't an isolated incident. 2021 was the worst year on record for violent road rage shootings in the United States. An average of 44 people per month were shot and killed or wounded in road rage shootings, more than double the pre-pandemic average. The girls' injuries were not thought to be life-threatening, and both men have been charged with attempted murder. English pop singer Rex Orange County, whose real name is Alexander O'Connor, has been charged with sexually assaulting a woman on six separate occasions in London. The 24-year-old artist appeared at Southwark Crown Court in London on Monday to deny the allegations. 
After pleading not guilty to all six charges, O'Connor was released on unconditional bail. A provisional trial date has been set for January 3rd, 2023. It was announced this week that Discovery Plus is readying a three-part docuseries that intends to examine the real-life history of the popular Fox television show Glee. The documentary claims it will pull back the curtain to show the production's highs and lows. The currently untitled series will address the controversies surrounding the show, of which there are aplenty, including cast member Leah Michelle being accused of unprofessional onset behavior and bullying by multiple former castmates. And in a case of divine timing, shortly after the announcement of the documentary, former Glee star Chris Colfer was interviewed on Michelle Collins' podcast and asked if he would be seeing Leah in her current starring role in the Broadway revival of Funny Girl. Colfer responded, quote, no. I can be triggered at home. And for more on the magic that is Discovery Plus, stay tuned for this week's Deep Dive. Two acclaimed authors and high-profile members of the Brooklyn Literati, Emily Gould and Keith Gessen, recently announced that they are getting a divorce. The split was first publicly announced by Emily herself in her newsletter, which was later picked up by a few New York tabloids and nerds interested in literary gossip. Shockingly, to allegedly pay for said divorce, Emily is trying to solicit money from her fans, $20,000 to be exact, in a long and unusual letter. In it, the author writes, Rather than beg for money from my parents, who don't actually have $20,000 lying around, I thought I'd try something a little unconventional. If you're reading this and want to contribute to the cause of my escaping my marriage with custody and sanity intact, my Venmo is as follows. And no, I'm not including the Venmo. Sunday Best regular Bethany Frankel came under fire this week when it was discovered that she sent a cease and desist to a small content creator that goes by the name of Meredith Lynch. The former housewife allegedly sent Lynch the order, which included threatening her if she discussed the matter in any capacity, following a post Lynch made. In it, Lynch is critical of Frankel for being critical of the Kardashians' unrealistic and unhealthy standard of beauty they purportedly perpetuate, when Frankel herself is the CEO of a food and lifestyle brand called Skinny Girl, arguably reinforcing negative body image stereotypes with its name and branding. But it didn't take long for folks to call out the hypocrisy of Frankel, a multi-millionaire with a team of lawyers, her own words, threatening legal action over a small-time content creator without the resources, albeit financial or otherwise, to fight someone like Frankel. And it's not as though Lynch said something that was merely defamatory, and actually cited other studies and organizations that have already made these claims against the Bravo Liberty and her brand. But it doesn't take long, looking at Frankel's own social media accounts over the past few months, to see that the former reality star is attempting to reinvent her online presence and reposition herself as some sort of brand expert, these days mostly posting allegedly unpaid reviews of, of beauty products from drugstores to department, from celebrity to corporate. So if Bethany wants to position herself as a brand expert and someone who is no bullshit, giving her opinion to her audience no filter, then she can't get upset when another content creator, without a fraction of Frankel's power and platform, posts content that is critical of her own. You can't have it both ways, Bethany. 
Comedian and podcast host Heather McDonald didn't hold back either, reaching out to Lynch personally and publicly shaming Frankel, who she called the biggest hypocrite in Hollywood. Side note, many people believe the reason that Bethany randomly started doing beauty product reviews all over her socials about a year ago wasn't a content pivot brought about by pandemic boredom, but allegedly because Frankel is developing her own beauty line and has been for years, the trademarks for which are all already secured and is publicly attainable knowledge. At the time of this recording, Lynch has not removed any of her content discussing Bethany or her brands. Frankel must be feeling in a litigious mood lately, as this all comes just a week after Frankel filed a lawsuit against TikTok. How do you follow up a viral fashion moment like Balenciaga's trash bag bag? How about another that looks like actual trash? Clutched in models' hands as they stomp through the muddy catwalk of the brand's recent fall 2023 fashion show, the bags were easy to miss, but their existence was confirmed this week by Demnogram. The handbags, modeled after the Lay's Potato Chip Company, have a rumored retail price of $1,800, a steep increase from your average package of crisps. The inspiration? Perhaps when Balenciaga's creative director himself had something of a mini viral fashion moment after being spotted carrying an actual bag of Lay's potato chips at the Antwerp Royal Academy of Fine Arts graduate show back in June. The Balenciaga version appears to be an official collaboration with Lay's, having been posted on the chip brand social media accounts. But you can take a look for yourself at ours at Sunday Best Pod on Instagram. In a new interview with Variety about her new book, iconic film actress Gina Davis detailed a bad experience with comedian and actor Bill Murray while they were making their 1990 crime comedy Quick Change. Davis detailed an uncomfortable first meeting with Murray in a hotel suite, followed by a time on set when Murray repeatedly screamed at her in front of the crew. Then, later in the week, details emerged regarding Murray's suspension from the film being mortal. Back in April, Searchlight Pictures shut down production on Aziz Ansari's directorial debut after a complaint was filed against Murray. According to Puck, a female production assistant made the complaint after the actor started kissing and straddling her without her consent. Murray did so because he thought she was flirting with him. After production was suspended, Murray worked with the staffer in mediation and came to a settlement of over $100,000. Searchlight is no longer making the film, and it was shopped around the market at the Cannes Film Festival back in May, but no one yet has bought it. It should be noted that back in 2021, actress Lucy Liu detailed an uncomfortable experience working with Murray on the set of the film Charlie's Angels. Murray was replaced by Bernie Mac in that film's sequel. This week, in an article published by the New York Times, Paris Hilton went into further detail regarding the abuse she faced as a teenager while attending a boarding school in Utah for troubled and difficult teens. The 41-year-old claimed she was forced to receive cervical exams while she was just 16 years old and attending Provo Canyon School in the late 1990s. Hilton claims that on multiple occasions, she and other females were awoken in the early morning hours and taken into a room by staff members, who Hilton claims were not doctors, and violated. 
Hilton is one of more than 50 former students, patients, employees, and experts who detailed to the outlet allegations of physical, verbal, emotional, and psychological abuse at these facilities, which were supposed to help children with mental health and behavioral problems. A slew of lawsuits and government reports aligned with former patient claims of horrific treatment children faced at these centers for decades, according to the Times. The outlet also recovered security camera footage of patients being assaulted and restrained. Hilton and others told the Times that the abuse was able to continue for so long because staff members were monitoring and restricting their phone conversations with parents. Since going public about her experience, Hilton has been working to reform institutions that administer psychiatric treatment to minors. At the time of this recording, Provo Canyon School is still very much alive and open, and you can see for yourself all of the services they claim to provide at ProvoCanyon.com. Kim Kardashian expanded her ever-growing business empire this week with the announcement of the release of her first line of bathroom accessories, made up of five pieces that are described as rounded, minimalist, and neutral. The pieces only come in one color, officially described as a neutral grayish beige that some may even call cement-like. But that's probably because these pieces are just made out of concrete. And the cleaning instructions are wild and read as follows. A. Clean with a smooth wet cloth with mild detergent. Due to the cement's rough surface, we don't recommend using microfiber or terry cloth towels. B. Do not submerge in water while cleaning because the cement dries slowly. C. Do not expose to excessive sunlight because the cement may crack. And D. Do not clean with anything that could stain concrete. The set includes a cotton swab canister for $65, another canister for your cotton balls for an additional 4 bucks, coming in at $69, plus a wastebasket for $129. Collectively, the five-piece collection will set you back $417 U.S. before tax. With the line, Kardashian claims she wants to bring the monochromatic interior design elements from her home to others. So, if you want your home to also look like the lobby of a church of Scientology, or the setting of a New Age horror film from the people that brought you Midsummer, the $89 tissue box that almost certainly could double as a murder weapon is for you. Several attendees of last weekend's TwitchCon in San Diego left with severe injuries, according to multiple accounts on social media. TwitchCon is a convention for the live-streaming video platform Twitch. The convention is organized by Twitch Interactive and claims to focus on the general culture of live-streaming and video gaming. An exhibit that was part of the weekend-long event had a ball foam pit sponsored by Leveno and Intel, with guests battling a la American Gladiators using foam rods. Many people thought it seemed unsafe, considering people were being required to sign a waiver before playing. Turns out, they were right, after Twitch user Adriana Sheshik broke her neck in two separate places after jumping into the foam pit. But she wasn't alone. Locke Van Ness also jumped into the foam pit and hit her foot on the concrete bottom, rolling her ankle and unsetting her kneecap. She said she will need to see a sports medicine specialist for more help with her knee and an MRI scan to assess whether she will need surgery. 
Other reports include many disabled people facing hostility and unhelpfulness from convention staff, disregarding fire codes and packing too many people into places, people passing out, and a security staff that didn't seem to understand how anything was supposed to operate. A lawsuit filed in Kentucky this week by three Jewish women claim the state's abortion laws are unconstitutional and violate their religious freedoms, since, according to the suit, their faith does not believe that life begins at conception, but from the moment the fetus emerges from the womb. The suit states that plaintiff's religious beliefs have been infringed upon. They are Jewish, and Jewish law asked and answered the question of fetal personhood thousands of years ago. And rabbis, commentators, and Jewish legal scholars have repeatedly confirmed these answers in the intervening millennia. While a fetus is deserving of some level of respect under Jewish law, the birth giver takes precedence. Jews have never believed that life begins at conception, according to the suit. For the first time in history, the Alaska Department of Fish and Game has canceled the winter snow crab season in the Bering Sea due to low numbers and limited availability. It's being reported that nearly a billion crabs have disappeared in two years, and no one seems to know why. Ben Dolly, a researcher with the Alaska Department of Fish and Game, is investigating the situation and says that disease could be one reason to blame for the disappearance of the crabs. Meanwhile, the planet is not only flooded, but on fire at the same time. And people are still asking questions like, Whoa, I wonder what's going on. Is something going on with the planet? Whoa. And finally, Daniel McKenna, a popular Peloton instructor known as the Irish Yank, has sued the company for allegedly discriminating against him after he was injured and subjecting him to Irish stereotypes. McKenna was fired from the company in September, and in a lawsuit filed on Tuesday, he accused Peloton and chief content officer Jennifer Cotter of breach of employment, disability discrimination, and creating a hostile work environment. Cotter allegedly used Irish stereotypes toward McKenna, including asking him if he was drunk on the job and pointing out his accent, telling him, quote, nobody understands what you're saying, Daniel, according to the lawsuit. Neither McKenna or Peloton have responded at the time of this recording. And those were your headlines. Now it's time to go behind, and in some cases beyond, the headlines for all the news that actually isn't fit to print. I've rounded up the week's best in old-fashioned gossip. It's time for another installment of Rumor Has It. And as always, everything you are about to hear is a rumor, and I have no proof to any of the claims I'm about to make. Rumor has it, sources are saying there are discrepancies between the things Prince Harry and Meghan Markle say on camera in their upcoming Netflix documentary, and the things that are written in the manuscript for Prince Harry's upcoming memoir. 
A lot in the show contradicted what Harry has written, so that was an issue, said an insider. Then, Harry and Meghan made significant requests to filmmakers to walk back content they themselves had provided for their own project. The Sussexes, oh god, that's hard to say, are believed to have talked a great deal on camera about the royal family and apparently are desperate to edit some of it out following their return to the U.S. after the Queen's funeral. And speaking of the royal family, rumor has it Princess Kate plans to work through her issues with Meghan during their upcoming trip to Boston with Prince William. Rumor has it Kim Kardashian and Kanye West only communicate through assistants now, according to Page Six. And Kanye only communicates to his assistant through the microchip the aliens implanted in his brain. Rumor has it Diddy still has beef with Mace after all these years and according to Mace is actively trying to ruin his reputation and career behind the scenes. This week in an interview Mace alleged that Diddy was responsible for several dates of his upcoming tour with Cameron and Judicus getting cancelled. Rumor has it Sidney Sweeney is set to star in and executive produce a Barbarella remake for Sony and while I would love to see a Barbarella reinterpreted by a new team I really hope this gets stuck in development hell or or Sweeney has to drop out due to scheduling issues. Or, maybe, she'll get cancelled once and for all after the rest of the world finally realizes that she and her entire family are hardcore Trump-loving MAGA Republicans. Rumor has it that despite being married, Shia LaBeouf likes to host unisex all-natural orgies at his home without the wife's presence. It is required that the men and women have a full bush and are all-natural to participate. Rumor has it the prolific Asian producer that allegedly sexually harassed actress Constance Wu on the set of their sitcom Fresh Off the Boat is indeed Melvin Marr, who Wu has not publicly named. And speaking of Kanye West, which you may have noticed I really try to avoid doing on this show, rumor has it he allegedly first professed his love for Adolf Hitler all the way back in 2018, when he infamously told TMZ that slavery was a choice. This week, during an episode of the Higher Learning podcast, Van Lathlin claimed the rapper had made the comments on camera back then, but TMZ ultimately edited them out of the interview. Rumor has it Broadway actress Lissy LaFontaine may be wearing out her welcome across the pond in the West End, where she is currently appearing in Moulin Rouge the Musical. She is reportedly giving Leah Michelle a run for her money in the Notorious Bitch Department. Stories are spreading fast amongst the tight-knit community, with producers also allegedly unhappy that she seems to miss any performance while her boyfriend is in town to visit. Rumor has it that Madonna biopic that I've been telling you about will almost certainly not be going forward after I first reported to you trouble with pre-production, the script development, and already costing too much money. Well now, Universal has reportedly placed the project in turnaround, meaning it's free game for any other studio to make. All they'd have to do is pay Universal back what they've already invested in it, which is unlikely to happen with its already hefty price tag. Rumor has it Trevor Noah was still very much under contract when he decided to step away from his hosting duties over at The Daily Show and gave very little notice of his inevitable departure. Paramount reportedly let him go without much fuss because they don't want to fight with the union and are looking to preserve their relationship with Noah as they are turning his book, Born a Crime, into a film along with several other projects. And finally, rumor has it, former actress Amanda Bynes has embarked on a new career route and has entered cosmetology school to become a manicurist. And those were your rumors. 
Now it's time for an all-new edition of Deep Dive, the part of our show where we take a story you may have caught in wind of over the past few weeks and break it all down for you so you can avoid your eyes glazing over if somebody else brings it up in conversation. On this installment of Deep Dive, the Warner Brothers Discovery Merger Massacre. Everyone likes to say America's favorite pastime is football, but in reality, it's mindless mergers and acquisitions that promise boundless new synergies, then deliver a parade of harmful consolidation, job cuts, closures, chaos, and competitive harms, all buried under a giant mountain of bullshit. If you recall, AT&T's massive $200 billion acquisition of DirecTV and Time Warner was a monumental disaster, resulting in countless layoffs and the closure of popular brands such as Mad Magazine. After AT&T executives failed spectacularly at pivoting to streaming video and online ads, AT&T spun off Time Warner into an entirely new company, Warner Media. Warner Media then immediately turned around and announced its blockbuster merger with Discovery. Despite a series of acquisitions and name changes, the deal has been a giant, monumental, dysfunctional shitshow from the very beginning, showcasing all of the worst aspects of our nationwide obsession with mindless stock-fluffing mergers and mega-deals. As usual with these kinds of deals, it's the lower-level employees, the creatives, and the customers who continue to pay the bill. But as per usual, I'm getting ahead of myself. You may have noticed some content disappearing from your HBO Max account over the past year, or you may have heard about that $90 million Batgirl movie, which got canceled a couple of months ago despite being wrapped filming and in the middle of post-production. Or this week, you may have heard something about the fact that it's officially the beginning of the end for the iconic Cartoon Network. And rightfully so, you may have been wondering, with so many dramatic turn of events this summer, what in the hell is actually going on over at Warner Brothers and their subsequent offshoots? Truth be told, a lot is going on over at Warner Brothers, now known as Warner Brothers Discovery, and we've likely not seen the end of what has essentially turned into a bloodbath, with numerous shows, movies, sub-studios, and talent left behind in the wake of this corporate massacre. It all started, simply enough, with the merging of two massive media companies, Warner Brothers, and the all-various offshoots that come with it, and the Discovery Corporation, the people responsible for just about every nature show in the United States that isn't on PBS. As of today, Warner Brothers Discovery is a multinational mass media and entertainment conglomerate. It was officially formed earlier this year after the spin-off of Warner Media by AT&T on April 8, 2022. But who knew the merging of the House of Batman and the home of Animal Planet would leave more casualties than Discovery Shark Week? When the companies merged, it was announced that the current CEO of Discovery, David Zaslav, or The Undertaker, as I will lovingly refer to him from here on out, would take control of the newly publicly traded company. 
The Undertaker stated at the time, in an introductory town hall hosted by Oprah Winfrey, of course. Side note, Discovery owns own Oprah's cable network, even though she now hosts shows on Apple+. Plus. Figure that out. That the two companies would spend a combined $20 billion U.S. annually on original content, outpacing even Netflix. He also stated that the company would expand its streaming services, which includes HBO Max, to reach 400 million global subscribers. But more importantly, it was stated at the time that the company would aim to achieve $3 billion in cost savings via synergies within two years. That is a staggering number for a company of this size, especially one that also just touted spending $20 billion annually on original content. Almost immediately, whispers began that HBO Max, the streaming service that Warner's outgoing management spent billions on establishing and creating so much original content for since its launch in May of 2020, would unbelievably be eventually dissolved. I'm not sure if you remember the massive global marketing push for HBO Max when it launched and the unbelievable amount of money they pumped into establishing it as a leading contender in the streaming wars just a year into its creation. And as someone who not only has cable but also subscribes to 10, yes, you heard me correctly, 10 streaming platforms, HBO Max is by far one of the best. If I had to choose between Max and Netflix, I would keep Max any day of the week. In fact, insiders were saying The Undertaker would be doing away with Max and Discovery Plus, which, yes, I also have, because how in the hell else was I supposed to watch Trixie Motel this summer, into a new combined streaming service, which immediately to me seems like a massive waste of time and money. With so much money spent and groundwork laid to make HBO Max a trusted and recognizable brand in an already oversaturated market, this feels remarkably counterproductive. Because the previous management's efforts worked. HBO Max has managed to establish itself as one of, if not the leading streaming provider, and certainly a leader in original content. Why not just quietly close Discovery Plus, which has a fraction of Max's subscribership and a less established brand, and integrate it into Max? But again, I'll come back to that. And thus, The Undertaker's killing spree had begun, albeit quietly enough. First, with the closure of CNN streaming service CNN Plus, which had only launched, wait for it, two weeks before the closure of the merger. After the previous management spent millions on launching the new streamer, The Undertaker, with barely 14 days under his belt, considered CNN Plus to be incompatible with his long-term goal of a unified streaming service. Again, why not just downsize and add CNN Plus to HBO Max? Why are we throwing money away and throwing even more money away to build something new from the ground up eventually? But then, earlier this year, Netflix announced a massive quarterly loss in subscribers and saw a decline in their stocks overnight. And the rest of the collective streaming world took a nervous sigh. The numbers reportedly forced many competitors such as Amazon Prime, Apple Plus, and HBO to look at their current business models of throwing billions of dollars at original content and hoping subscribers stick around. Companies immediately started canceling projects and slashing budgets. Because you've got to remember, we are living through a major time of transition for media. Music, television, film, and 
In some instances, even books are all changing in terms of how customers consume content. And right now, we are watching a lot of billion-dollar companies who've invested so deeply into the way things operated 20 years ago that they're basically throwing limp spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks. There's a chance that just 10 years from now, we will all be talking about the great streaming wars of the early 20s that our kids won't even understand. In a lot of ways, it's like we are right at the advent of television all over again, just this time without Betty White there to keep everyone's bullshit to a minimum. Once Netflix turned in their poor numbers, The Undertaker started tightening his straps, starting with two of its own cable networks, TBS and TNT, suspending scripted development of original content for both networks, which resulted in the cancellation of such shows as Full Frontal with Samantha Bee. It should be noted the next day, The Undertaker purchased approximately $1 million worth of Warner Brothers Discovery stock. During this time, there was a lot happening behind the scenes, with executives being shuffled from position to position and department to department, or outright laid off. Ahead of Warner Brothers Discovery delivering its second quarter earnings for the company, and its first since the merger, The Undertaker started making some controversial cuts to HBO Max throughout the summer cancelling all original program development in Europe, all live-action children's programming development, and, this is the big one, all direct-to-streaming films developed exclusively for HBO Max. This decision led to the shocking cancellations of two relatively high-profile films that were nearly finished. A new Scooby-Doo animated film, but most notably the eagerly anticipated Batgirl movie, which was in the final stages of post-production and had already cost the studio $90 million to make. Not only was this to be an almost $100 million superhero film led by a woman of color, it also starred America's sweetheart Brendan Fraser as the antagonist. But even more astonishingly, the film featured Michael Keaton reprising his role of Batman. Yes, you heard me correctly. This Batgirl film was going to live inside the world of Tim Burton's Batman films, with an aging Batman played once again by Keaton, and allegedly even making reference to Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman, possibly setting up her return in future films. And if that alone doesn't sting, are you even my listener demographic anyway? Batgirl was to be the kickoff of Keaton playing Batman in multiple films, the upcoming Aquaman sequel, and next summer's The Flash, a movie that should actually be cancelled for entirely different reasons that I might get into on another episode. Both appearances Keaton had already filmed. But with the cancellation of Batgirl, this affected the other two, and without this first reintroduction of Keaton, the studio felt the need to spend more money to reshoot Keaton's scenes with Ben Affleck, who has been playing Batman for Warner Brothers for the last few years. No word on whether Keaton will still appear in The Flash, but I find this unlikely. What an unbelievable waste of time. You convince an icon like Michael Keaton to get back into the Batman suit for not one, not two, but three movies at his age, and then you reshoot them all with Ben Affleck or simply don't release them at all? If I were Michael Keaton, I would never work with Warner Brothers again. 
Creatively, The Undertaker claimed that the Batgirl movie was never filmed for the big screen. It was filmed for television, so they simply didn't have the option of releasing it in theaters. And since The Undertaker doesn't want any DC character films premiering any way other than on the big screen moving forward, they shelved Batgirl and Scooby-Doo to receive a tax break that I didn't even know existed. The people involved in the film creatively found out about the film's cancellation like everybody else did. In fact, the directors, who had taken a break from post-production to attend a wedding the weekend it was announced, quickly tried to save their half-edited film, but when they remotely logged on to Warner's servers, the film had already been removed and the directors have never seen any of their footage again. And allegedly, it's being destroyed. Because in order to receive the tax break for these two films, Warner Brothers Discovery has to prove that the films will never be released, and in order to do so, they have to destroy them, according to sources. I even heard reports of the studio hosting funeral screenings of what was finished of the film for those involved to see it before it disappears forever. God, I hope somebody taped it on their phones. I seriously don't understand how releasing this movie on HBO Max, regardless of its quality, would have hurt DC's brand any more than it's already been hurt by every other DC movie Warner has released so far. This, as you can imagine, led to massive blowback from fans and industry colleagues alike, with many fellow directors and artists, including Kevin Smith, publicly declaring what a mistake it is for Warner to not be releasing Batgirl in any capacity. Several Hollywood agents and managers even stated publicly that they would encourage their clients to work elsewhere, as their projects are simply not safe at Warner Brothers Discovery. But The Undertaker doubled down and argued that original films for HBO Max lack economic value and impact in comparison to theatrical releases, which is absolute horseshit and sounds like a bunch of PR bullshit to appease an archaic board of directors that doesn't seem to or doesn't want to understand that post-pandemic, the way we consume film will never be the same and the heydays of movie theaters have come and gone. It's never going to feel like 1996 at a movie theater ever again in terms of box office revenue, unless maybe your Marvel. HBO subsequently faced a reorganization of its own on August 15th that included layoffs within HBO Max's non-scripted, live-action family, international originals, and casting units, as well as HBO's acquisitions unit. But interestingly, this summer HBO Max also started to quietly remove original content that had been on the streamer, such as the critically acclaimed show Vinyl and last year's remake of The Witches starring Anne Hathaway. Why on earth would HBO Max be trying to make their library smaller when they were already cutting most forthcoming original content? Well, apparently, as long as shows and movies are up on the streaming platform, Warner still has to pay residuals, resulting in the pulling of most episodes of Sesame Street, for example, after touting that HBO Max would be the home for all things Sesame Street, housing its entire iconic catalog. The Witches was subsequently sold to Netflix, but shows like Vinyl have just vanished since they were never released on home media. But get this. Apparently... People who purchased digital copies of these shows, meaning you paid full price to not just stream it but actually own it, albeit digitally, just like buying a DVD, woke up the next morning to find that the shows had been removed from their own personal libraries, which is apparently totally legal for now. 
And this is something that I think is important that we're all aware of. When purchasing digital content to theoretically own something, the studio or distributor has the right to remove that content from your own personal library as they see fit, regardless of what you paid for it. And no, you're not entitled to any kind of refund, which to me is absolutely outrageous. Digital copies of movies cost on average 25 bucks. Entire seasons of TV shows can be even more. It isn't any cheaper to buy a digital copy of something as opposed to a DVD or Blu-ray if it's available, and oftentimes costs more. So if you don't actually own these things, why are we paying so much for them? Next time somebody wants to make fun of me for still buying Blu-rays, which happens all the time, I will kindly now be telling people where to stick it. At least I actually fucking own my shit. The Undertaker isn't coming to my apartment to break open my entertainment unit and steal my Murder, She Wrote DVDs. And then in September, Warner Brothers Discovery became the subject of a proposed class action lawsuit by one of its shareholders, alleging that then Warner Media was over-investing in streaming content without sufficient concern for return on investments, which I think could be said about any streaming platform, come on, and had overstated the number of HBO Max subscribers by at least a whopping 10 million by counting inactivated subscriptions bundled with AT&T services, thus misleading investors. It also alleged that Discovery executives failed to warn investors that Warner Media's prospectus contained misleading statements. More rumors started to circulate that, remarkably, Warner Brothers Discovery was preparing to pursue a sale of itself as early as 2024. Several sources claim that Comcast has already expressed interest in acquiring the company. But on September 28th, during another one of those town hall meetings he loved so much, this time without Oprah, The Undertaker addressed speculation and denied they were for sale, stating they already had everything they needed for success. Then this past week, Warner Brothers Television Group laid off 82 employees and eliminated 43 vacant positions as part of a restructuring that primarily impacts the unscripted and animation units. This included the consolidation of Warner Horizon and Telepictures creative operations, but most notably the consolidation of Cartoon Network Studios with Warner Brothers Animation. And while The Undertaker has not bowed to pressure to release Batgirl, they did reverse one of their polarizing decisions less than 24 hours later. Last week, the company had announced the closure of its long-running Warner Brother Television Group's writer and director workshops, prompting outcry and lament from industry creatives and an aggressive challenge from the Directors Guild of America. These workshops, for example, are a way for actors on their own television shows to train and direct to write episodes for their or other shows within the company, which has been unbelievably successful thus far. But The Undertaker reversed that decision, announcing the next day the workshops weren't dead after all and were simply being relocated from the TV division to the company's corporate DEI team. So as it stands today, one point for mankind... 300 for The Undertaker. Who or what will be next? All I can say for certain, nothing and no one is safe right now at Warner Brothers Discovery. This has been another Deep Dive. The world is full of crap, and the news, it's even crappier. But there's still good news out there, you just gotta look for it. That's why we're gonna end this week, and every week, with some good news in a segment that we call Something You Might Have Missed. 
This week in Half Moon Bay, California, a place that sounds like it's straight out of a Sweet Valley High novel, the city celebrated their 50th annual pumpkin festival, where they say the largest pumpkin ever grown in the United States has just been crowned. Weighing in at a staggering 2,560 pounds, the massive beast was grown by Travis Geinger, who drove the pumpkin over 2,000 miles from Minnesota, where the teacher grew it in his very own backyard. And appropriately enough, it turns out Travis isn't just any teacher, he naturally teaches horticulture. According to the teacher, the winning pumpkin will be turned into a massive jack-o'-lantern, with the seeds being dispersed nationwide to hopefully grow another winner. And you can check out Travis's prized pumpkin on our Instagram. And that's something you might have missed. This week, the world lost an icon of stage and screen with the passing of Dame Angela Lansbury, just shy of her 97th birthday. She's probably best remembered and most famous for her groundbreaking role as mystery novelist and amateur sleuth Jessica Fletcher, the first female over 60 to lead a network primetime television series with Murder, She Wrote, which remarkably ran for 12 seasons and four made-for-television movies. But it was Lansbury's work in the theater that so many diehards will always remember her for, with iconic turns in Mame and Sweeney Todd. Or perhaps, like my boyfriend, her passing only strikes a nerve once you realize she was the voice of Mrs. Potts in Beauty and the Beast. My earliest memories of Lansbury are with my now-past grandfather, making her mystery series appointment television each week. He was a farmer who rarely watched TV, but never missed a murder she wrote. However you were familiar with her, the world mourns the loss of a funny, professional, and lauded broad of Hollywood. The outpouring of love led to some unique stories coming to light, one from a woman whose parents ran a flower shop in New York City when she was a little girl back in 1968. Her father had recently passed away, and Lansbury came in on a day her mother was having a particularly difficult time, with Christmas around the corner and the realization that this would be her first as a single mother and widow. The woman, who was eight at the time, said a few days later, with a taxi idled outside, Lansbury popped in and dropped off three large bags of children's toys and clothing for her. Or, this fun fact, that during Murder, She Wrote, Lansbury made it a practice to hire guest actors of the Golden Age that had aged out of the game and often had not worked in years, because it allowed them to earn the union points they needed for their insurance and pensions. And the cable channel Turner Classic Movies has announced that on November 21st, they are airing 24 hours of the late actress's work, including 11 of her films and a recording of her remarkable turn in the stage production of Sweeney Todd from 1982. And we will get the chance to see her act once more, as upon her passing, it was revealed that she will appear in the upcoming sequel to Knives Out, entitled Glass Onion. How fitting... Her final performance will be in another murder mystery. It may not take place in Cabot Cove, but we'll take it. Rest well, Miss Lansbury. My, how you were loved.
And that brings us to the end of another edition of Sunday Best. As always, I want to thank you for taking a little time out of your Sunday to spend it with me. And if you've been enjoying what you've been hearing, be sure to follow us on Spotify and hit the bell symbol to turn on notifications so you don't miss a thing. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at Sunday Best Pod, where we post visual aids to some of the stories we discuss on the show. Join me next time as we take another look back at the weeks ahead. I'm Justin Meisner. Reminding you not to be a dick this week. Goodbye. Next week, there will not be a new episode of Sunday Best, but don't fear, we will return on Sunday, October 30th with a special Halloween edition.